This is Deep in the D-Pad, where we explore all things through an intellectual lens. I'm R.K. Taylor. All things gaming. What did I say? You just said all things through an intellectual lens. All things. Everything. (laughs) I'm like, damn, that's a tall order. Hang on there. All things gaming. I'm R.K. Taylor, and with me is Carlos Gutierrez. Hello, everyone. On this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, acquisitions and monopolies, and uh, specifically in gaming, in the gaming industry, and how these uh, both impact developers and impact players. I just want to make super clear that Carlos and I are not economists. We don't have any formal economics background, and this is an economics topic. We do feel that uh, it's an important one to cover, especially with some you know, the news, recent news of over the last few years, last five years, let's say. So we do have some links that, you know, will support some of the things that we're going to say. And at some points in the episode, we may just like read directly from these links and then cite them. So uh, you'll find all that stuff in the in the description. Uh, but with that being said, Carlos, do you have any other caveats that you want to put at the top of the show? Uh, yeah, we are not big corpo businessmen. Like we are definitely more on like the creative side of that duality. And we're not even indie businessmen. (laughs) We are (laughs) no kind of businessman. (laughs) Yeah, we we need to start fake businesses to then uh, baby step our way to real businesses. The only other thing I could think of is like, uh, just as with a lot of things in game development, it's always on a case by case basis. So how we will theorize and or cite like, certain effects on like game development or like developers in the studio through one of these things it could be different at another studio like it's pretty much all going to come with the caveat of like this is sort of a case-by-case thing everybody handles it a bit differently and like it's still a very big growing learning type field when you say it's on a case-by-case basis you're referring to like the the culture of the studio handling an acquisition is that is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, the culture and or the experience of the studio, yeah, handling, like, whatever could be a merger or an acquisition. Yeah, that completely makes sense, uh, and we'll get we'll get into more of that, but uh, before we do, let's hit our, uh, our first segment, uh, our Deep Head Delights. <coughs> this is a segment where we talk about uh, something, a positive memory, or, or just a, a mechanic that we appreciate, something that we just want to bring to the show, and... A video game tidbit that we find delightful. Yeah, Cross, hit me with your video game love. What do you What do you got going on this week? What's What's on your mind for this week? My delight has to do with Elden Ring. I know a lot of people are talking about it recently because, like, you know, it came out big. Like, oh, it's a new Dark Souls like game from the Dark Souls developer. But the reason Elden Ring is my delight for this week is because I went into the game with as little marketing exposure as I could. Because I wanted to keep as much of the game a mystery as possible. Almost like playing Breath of the Wild for me. Like that was one of the games where I like tried to cut off as much as I could see about that game because I just wanted to be this great like mystery box I'm like unraveling. And with Elden Ring, it's just like my first like four to eight hours were just so chock full of like, wow, new lands, like wonder equally paired with oh my god like no get away from me like horrified like i'm discovering a new monster slash a beast of this world and it's like it's it's character design is like very cool to very fun to very terrifying the attack patterns are like really interesting and just like having no exposure to the marketing leading up to the game's release 
I'll say like little to no because I'm sure I saw like a teaser trailer or two somewhere down the line just to like know that this game's out. But just having that sense of discovery over and over again throughout my playtime feels really good. And it's not like a feeling I get very often when playing games. So I'm glad that I could help foster that type of environment and scenario for myself with Elden Ring and trying to just keep away from like trailers and stuff like that. So everything could be this sort of like terrifying, but joyous, like, wow, a new novelty, sweet. Oh, it kills me in one hit. Okay. Well, fuck. I guess I was correct to be deathly afraid of that thing. Yeah, can I ask, uh, I know this isn't the point of the D-pad delights, but is there anything about this game that you're finding, uh, I don't want to say frustrating, because I feel like that's the nature of a lot of From games, but, I like, unduly frustrating, perhaps? Like, I, not just, like, dying a lot, right? I mean, that could be your answer, right? But is there anything about the game that you find lacking? Uh, find lacking? I guess it's kind of, like, based on taste. I know, in general, I like things either explained to me and or guided a little more. I would say most AAA games nowadays guide you a little too heavily. And the Elden Ring game tries to go for this middle ground, right? Where it is giving you indicators of where you should go. Like, not where you should go, but more so the direction you should walk in to complete the main quest at Bonfire's. So, like, if you're looking at the world map and you see where your bonfires are that you can fast travel between, there will be this, like, little sort of, like, spirit marker on each bonfire, or at least the really relevant bonfires, that point in the direction to, like, what's the next bonfire that kind of takes you down a main story chunk. And that is their sort of way of saying, oh, okay, we understand that newer gamers kind of need to be led a little bit, so let's do that, but, like, nothing else. Like, you're not going to have a quest tracker. You don't have a notebook with all the NPCs you met and what they're asking for. You still have to just kind of remember that and or write it down for yourself, like, on paper or something. And that's very from software. Also, game guides, yeah. Like, if you want to, it it kind of feels like part of... uh, ruining the game experience for myself is looking up a game guide like that's why i try to like hold out as long as i can and or ask my friends instead so if my friends don't know about it then it becomes this kind of shared mystery that we now get to explore together and i like the strides it's making but of course i would want it to be a little more in line with the traditional AAA take of like having your quest journal, right? Here's your mission, a little brief description, maybe a screenshot denoting like what step of the quest you're on. I definitely would like that in the Souls-like games in general because I like doing these side quests and especially the new and weird things that they tend to show. But I by no means can understand like half the stuff that these NPCs are talking about and or their like motivations if potentially this quest has like multiple ways to complete it, right? Like because they they can totally set that up in uh, previous games where like a character will tell you to do something and maybe it turns out they're a bad actor. So you actually should have just killed that NPC from the start and they're not a boss or anything. It's just like, oh, he 
didn't seem too bad so i just did this quest and it's like well now you're going to get the bad ending or like now you got locked off from these other two side quests but you never get any indication of that so anyway the place where i think it could do better for me personally just like my own sort of desired player experience is having a little bit more guidance in regards to like what the main mission is and what the side missions are and like just how to go about them i don't know if i necessarily want to push it as far as saying like i want a number out of number for like every time i go into a cave that it turns into a mini dungeon. Like, I don't want to know how many shrines are on the map, I think. I just want to know that, like, there are shrines, and I would like to be notified at the point where I have found every last shrine. But I don't necessarily want to know, after I have found my first shrine, that there are 89 shrines and I just found the first one. Because that turns it into a checklist. Thank you for sharing, Carlos. Uh, switching to my D-pad delight, mine is about Pokemon Arceus. Carls, you still haven't played this game as far as I know, uh, but I'm sure you've seen like a ton of stuff about it at this point. Right, yeah, this is the game where you're a Pokemon researcher, you're catching them and studying them, rather than outright having to battle your way to the top. Yes, and the thing that I want to talk about specifically is, is this concept of research level mm-hmm. uh, that I think is just absolutely brilliant for them to have included in this game. Um, for anybody who's played a Pokemon game, I know that there are a lot of people out there who've played the mainstream or mainline Pokemon games, you know, the ones that are named after, like, colors or jewels, basically. There's a very strict formula that Pokemon has been following since, like, the, what, early to mid-90s. They've tried to iterate on it with games like uh, Let's Go Pikachu, Let's Go Eevee. Or, uh, uh, we've seen games like Pokemon Unite, uh, which is a MOBA. Uh, and Pokemon Go, which is, uh, you know, an AR game. But I think that Arceus is taking Pokemon and the main the mainline Pokemon series and trying to, to innovate on that um, the best so far. You know, it's, cl- it's truest to the original idea, the original model, uh, but it's found really fun ways to, to engage you. So the, the idea is obviously catch them all, right? That's like every Pokemon game, right? But the, the, the way that you go about... Um, increasing what's called their research level is by interacting with a Pokemon in specific ways. So let's say, let's say it's like a Vulpix or like a fire Pokemon. If you see Vulpix use like flamethrower, that will increase your, your research level experience for that particular Pokemon. Uh, instead, a challenge could be to catch the Pokemon without being seen. So you have to like crouch in the hills and tall grass uh, you know, get a good angle and use a specific type of ball that has an advantage for Pokemon that are not noticing you, um, that have not become alerted to you. Um, and and so it, instead of just catching the Pokemon, right, you're trying to find a way to interface with them in ways that the game will give you credit for. And that is so new. And it, it prevents this kind of like grinding mentality that I think the mainline Pokemon games had, where it was like constantly about like leveling up so you could get the next gym badge so you could do the next thing. You know, fighting is a more engaging mechanic now because you don't always have to fight. Uh, and and each Pokemon having a research level cap of 10, you know, it's like a bite-sized amount of information that you could really get for that Pokemon. It, it kind of makes sense in that sense. But what you're talking about with um, Elden Rings, like, they don't have a checklist in the sense of their, like, fast travel points. Pokemon, there is a literal checklist, but you can, they're they're all, like, optional. 
right? You can f- you can increase the research level in a bunch of different ways. They might give you like eight different tasks, and you could do the same one a bunch of times, uh, you know, and you'll be scored differently. So like, so let's say let's say again, that's the same Volpix example, right? It'll be like catch a Volpix will be the first thing listed on that list, and I'll get credit for it the first time I do it, the third time I catch, the fifth time I catch. So it, the bar becomes higher for what is like satisfying that research requirement, but because there are other options, I still do have a lot of freedom, and I can I, I get to choose like how I want to move around that world. Um, and this is just going to be so much better when it's like fully open world. But also the mounts in that game are so lit, bro. Yeah, like I think it's really cool how they integrated the Pokemon as like parts of navigation. I really hope we see that like really put to its fullest in the new games, uh, Scarlet and Violet. It seems like Arceus was very much some type of like first step or at least like some sort of building block that goes to the Pokemon Violet and Scarlet reveal. Because it's very much like that open world, or at least like hub and spoke, but it seems like this one is actually going to be hub and world, less like go out into this environment. Yeah, and I am very interested in seeing like how that is going to handle everything in the mainline. Like, I really like the Pokemon research thing, and I hope they make another game that kind of goes like a little more monster hunter with it in like nearly every way it can. Um, I do think that there's like room for like a monster hunter style Pokemon game, but I know they would never allow it. Cause like you, you, you end up harming Pokemon. There's a philosopher, uh, Descartes who, um, you know, I think, I think therefore I am was like his, uh, like one of his major contributions that's kind of permeated into, like mainstream culture, um, this Cartesian skepticism argument, it's, you know, he has a whole thing in, in the meditations that, that works this out. But, uh, one of the things that he like w- said in his letters was like, uh, like basically that like all animals are like automatons who don't like experience pain or have feelings and shit, uh, which is, you know, obviously a controversial thing to say, but I was just imagining that applying to Pokemon. Like just imagine like if someone was like, basically spreading a rumor that pokemon don't feel pain it's like we've seen them like (laughs) we've seen them in all kind of rough and tumble conditions you know it's like literally shocking each other to get deeper into the d-pad uh i first want to go through some of the context it's early 2022 right now so i think so far the largest story of this year maybe of the 2020s in in the gaming world um has been uh microsoft announcing its intention to buy activision blizzard for 68.7 billion dollars and there are other uh companies that have also uh acquired uh other companies for billions of dollars right so we have take two buying uh zynga for 12.7 billion dollars which was also in 2022 um and Microsoft buying uh, Zenimax for eight point one billion dollars in twenty twenty. Uh, Carlos, do you have any others that you that come to mind that you think warrant a conversation? Or yeah, additionally, I would mention Tencent because they are a major player initially on mobile, uh, producing a lot of like different games, and eventually, I think, like rapidly building their way up onto PC and console platforms. They bought over 80% of Supercell shares in 2016. Supercell is the developer that makes Clash of Clans. So again, they're like in the mobile market, but trying to grab as much 
real estate within that market as possible. One of the first questions that we should be asking is, why is this happening, right? What is the advantage that a company has to to merge or to uh, acquire a, a studio? Uh, what and and you know there are some obvious strategies. There are some that uh, are like far too deep for the scope of this podcast. But Carl's, can you throw out some like I guess uh, common sense reasons why, for example, Microsoft would be paying eight billion eight over eight billion dollars uh, for Zenimax? Really quick, that's the crazy thing about this. You know, it's eight point one million dollars, which is you just want to say eight billion, right? Uh, but that point one is like a hundred million dollars. You know, it's like amazing what a decimal point does when you're in numbers this large. Uh, it's like life changing money. You know, for like my if you distributed a hundred million dollars to me and my and my ten favorite cousins, we will our lives will be changed. You know, and it's like just a decimal. decimal. But anyway, going back to the question, uh, like you can use this example or another one. But like, what's the what's the reason why Microsoft might want to buy Zenimax? So for Microsoft specifically, they are buying ZeniMax in order to gain new games to their library. Like they're building out Game Pass. They're really leading the charge with this games subscription Netflix type service. And they want to build that library as fast as they can, as much as they can. While also fostering like future investment for that library, right? So if you buy the publisher, you get all the milk the cow has produced already and you get a fresh cow that's producing new milk. And the cow here is the game developer studios. So ZeniMax is the parent company to like Bethesda, which means now they're going to have studios working on Elder Scroll game. They're going to have studios working on Fallout game, studios working on like the evil within because, you know, Tango Softworks are part of that Bethesda umbrella. And I think even Ghostwire Tokyo is like the next thing from them. Right. So you get this neat variety of games that's coming from like one particular publisher and it took just one purchase as opposed to going for like studio after studio after studio. You can just kind of like do a big grab by just going for the publisher. Take two buying Zynga would probably be more so of this like let's get into a different space. Like take two doesn't necessarily do mobile games. Like they're more of like console type publisher and stuff. So Zynga makes a lot of money in the mobile sphere. It could be kind of equal parts. Let's get in on this mobile money by going and trying to acquire a safe bet, highly lucrative type mobile developer slash publisher. And also maybe we want to make our own IP, like whatever Take-Two makes, and put that into the mobile market in some way, whether that's like one of our less liked, you know, cash grab style gotcha games that are filled with ads and like, you know, random lever pulls to like get loot boxes. Or it could be like this really well thought out pay one price initially and you just get the whole game. But now it's using like a take two IP. Maybe it's using take two IP to reskin one of Zynga's existing games. Maybe it's like Farmville, but with a take two IP applied to it. Right. So it's both about like getting money, of course, but I think as long as they're doing it smartly, it's also about investment, right? So with Microsoft getting ZeniMax, it means now we have games that gamers can play immediately that like would be older and stuff, but all these studios, let's say it's like 13 studios, will now be working for us 
and we can choose whether or not we make them Xbox exclusive. That's your return on investment like immediately is the Game Pass games and the ROI for the future is those future releases and or how you handle exclusivity. But that also, the exclusivity thing, tends to, I think, sort of trigger like flags on the FTC side where it's like, oh, like, are we potentially snuffing out competition now or like choking the market? Yeah, you went so much deeper with that than I expected. Uh, but yes, like totally agree. The At the bottom line, you know, to abstract it from the games industry, it's about at Microsoft believing that, that purchasing ZeniMax uh, is now is going to be uh, fruitful in the sense that they will make more money. You know, Zen, they believe that the the titles associated with that that company are going to continue to imp- like ga- garner esteem, and and that they'll still be able to make money from those IPs. That's kind of like co- a common sense approach. This isn't a groundbreaking idea in economics that you're going to want a return on investment, right? Like they, they if they're spending billions of dollars, they're expecting to make billions of dollars. Yeah, and just like last thing to say is like it's also not like just gamers going out and buying like whatever they think is cool. Like yes, that kind of is happening in the sense of like, oh yeah, I've seen your output, you know, this looks pretty good. We're going to like acquire it, but it's not necessarily like Jimmy Microsoft is here to make billion dollar deals and just because he specifically really liked playing Fallout 3 for like six months he's buying Zenimax. It's like lots of numbers and history and like boring stuff happening in the background that leads to these deals. Yeah, and just to get on the same page in terms of uh, like making sure we're using the same language, right? Uh, a merger of equals, it happens when two companies of approximately the same size uh, join and become become one new entity. Right. Whereas an acquisition is where one company who's larger buys out another company and that company becomes subsumed uh, into into the, you know, they become a parent company. Right. Like that's what uh, let's think. Can we like, throw out a couple of examples like Activision Blizzard uh, by the hyphen? I am assuming that was a a merger of equals. Can you can you confirm that, Carlos? Yeah, so Activision merged with Blizzard, and they merged specifically because they both were fairly big developer-publisher hybrid companies. Uh, so they merged into 2008. It was a $18.9 billion deal to kind of give a frame of reference for what's being made now in 2022, right, uh, with the Activision-Blizzard deal, and even comparing that to the ZeniMax deal. These two publisher developer houses, Activision and Blizzard, have like many big name, big financial games behind them, right? Activision, most famously, probably Call of Duty. Blizzard, most famously, Warcraft, Starcraft, slash World of Warcraft. The main point here is that they are both companies with like equal size and or weight, I guess, financially. So they end up merging as opposed to one company acquiring the other or there being some sort of like hierarchy of power. They seem to like actually like merge in this one, hence the hyphenated name like you referenced, Activision Blizzard. But now Microsoft with the acquisition, Microsoft is like big Microsoft. It's not necessarily just Xbox. It's like this is Windows PC, Windows operating system, yada, yada, yada. So 
all of that it makes this company into a much bigger financial daddy for the Activision Blizzard. And thus, Microsoft is now, like I just said, going to be financial daddy for this like big merged together game developer game studio network which is like pretty wild like that's why we get to these numbers that are just like so inconceivable like the actual physical tangible amount of money is just like such high scale at this point that like we we couldn't see it we couldn't picture it for ourselves in reality. And if we could, it, the weight of it, the literal weight of the dollar bills would crush us underneath it. <laughs> this is a big enough deal that the Federal Trade Commission is overseeing an antitrust review of the Activision Blizzard acquisition by Microsoft. You know, I'm not sure what the effects of that could be. I'm, I'm, I think that it could be that the FTC just says, eh, no, like this is going to lead to to a monopoly, you know, or this is going to hinder competition enough that we cannot let y'all merge, uh, or cannot let, you know, X acquire Y, uh, in this case, you know, and that's, that seems like a lot of power. Uh, and I, I don't know how often that happens, but, uh, it's certainly interesting that it's going to be in conversation with, with the video game industry. Um, and just so that we have like a clarification about monopolies and like the FTC's roles. Uh, I want to read this, uh, this link that I found on Investopedia that's, uh, that uses rum sales as an example. Okay, so just bear with me. When firms with dominant market shares prepare to enter a merger, the FTC must decide whether the new entity will be able to exert monopolistic and anti-competitive pressures on the remaining firms. For example, the company that makes Malibu Rum and had an 8% market share of total rum sales proposed buying the company that makes Captain Morgan's Rums, which had a 33% of total sales, to form a new company holding 41% market share. Meanwhile, the incumbent dominant firm held over 54% of sales. This would mean that the premium rum market would be posed of two competitors, together responsible for over 95% of sales in total. The FTC challenged the merger on the grounds that the two remaining companies could collude to raise prices and force Malibu to divest its rum business. So that sounds like a pretty serious consequence. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, the you know, the rum just replaced rum with AAA games. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I have some thoughts on it. Like, I think... That was a good qualifier towards the end that there was kind of two big heads controlling over 90% of the market. With the video game industry as a whole, I don't see that happening, at least for a very, very long time, like us getting close to that moment, because gaming has been so democratized in like we have people who like just make an entire game in their house like one room what have you and that will be part of the market will that be like a huge 20 percent part of the market or something i don't know but i don't see those people getting swept up in these big like mergers and whatnot so at the very least like the indie developer the actual like in a basement like indie developer not the like new double a which is like indie backed by some sort of triple a publisher i think those will still be out and about and you know we'll have companies that maybe come up to like a quarter control of the market or like 30 percent control of the market and 
I think I might have mentioned this earlier, but I feel like platform exclusivity plays a huge role into it. Like it could potentially be a case where the FTC says this is okay, but under these conditions, we need to make sure that people have access to these games. You are not just saying, oh, I bought 40% of the game's market and now it's all going to be Xbox exclusive. So ha ha ha, I'm going to be able to have so many more Xboxes sold because now people can't get Call of Duty, which Microsoft, to their credit, have come out ahead of the crowd to say, hey, we still want to foster a good gaming environment for the gamers TM. Therefore, everything we got that has been multi-platform through Activision Blizzard will continue to be multi-platform. We don't want it to be an Xbox exclusive. And that is good for the gamers TM and also could potentially be them putting up some sort of like white flag in front of the FTC to say, hey, we really like money and we don't want to fuck up the game <laughs> metaphorically and literally. So uh, just we'll we'll help. We'll let everybody play. Like, don't get mad at us, please. And who knows? Maybe that'll work. But. I wonder if, like, maybe there could just be a provision in there that says, like, hey, yes, you can do this, but never, ever, ever shall you claim full exclusivity to a lot of these things that weren't exclusive beforehand. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that there, those things would have to be, like, time indexical. So, like, for five years, you cannot, you know, or something like that. Yeah. I guess we're hitting our first roadblock, though, uh, where our intuitions are uh, quite different, I think, uh, about the... Uh, the impact, the financial impact of indie game developers, and I'm I'm curious if uh, I wish we had hard data to be able to to crunch and, and really like kind of digest this. But my thinking is that if Sony or Nintendo were to acquire, if one were to acquire the other, or if they merged, we would essentially have a, a, a tried and true like duopoly, right? Like it would be the Microsoft and then the like Sony hyphen Nintendo. And I agree that there are a ton of indie. Uh, developers out there but it's like if we were going to be having a conversation about like fast food monopolies and let's say mcdonald's was buying up a bunch of places people making burgers in their kitchen at home is doesn't count because it's it's not occupying that market share if i start selling burgers outside of my kitchen window to like strangers and a few people come by and buy them you know i'm far less than one percent of what mcdonald's is making every hour and because the they own the mainstream consoles and they they pump out triple-a games that are worth 60 70 bucks i i think that they are occupying um not just a, a majority of the attention but a majority of of the money is my would be my guess so I'd, i'm curious if if indie developers are really putting a dent in that yeah ryan you definitely have a good point there like indie developers especially the ones that are like way smaller scale like maybe one individual or like a small handful of individuals they wouldn't be a big enough part of the population, especially if we did have a like Nintendo-Sony merger of some sort. It is kind of interesting to think about, though, because it feels like there are a lot of big publishers out there still. Like, I know I mentioned THQ being sold off like some time ago, but there's still like 2K Games out there. 2K Games is a big publisher. There's Electronic Arts that's still out there. I'm thinking exclusively from like game output. We still have big publishers in play where like if Sony and Nintendo were to combine or even Microsoft and Nintendo were to combine, we would still potentially have like enough players that like it just keeps the scale 
potentially off duopoly if we're talking about hardware publishers then of course right we only have the big three more or less the nintendo the sony the microsoft xbox and like to combine any of those you know it feels like the triforce like from zelda like if you were to combine two of those three triangles you're not going to have the triforce and all hell is going to break loose because like the balance the natural balance has been disturbed whereas like the video game software market is like so big and the producers are still so numerous that even with that high level of like hardware manufacturer like merger at least on the software side we would still be a little further away from a duopoly than you might think that's my optimistic hope as i'm hearing you i i was like kind of developing this thought experiment i guess where just imagine you lived in a neighborhood that had like a hundred houses right let's just let's imagine it's just like this enormous cul-de-sac where you can kind of see all the houses right and uh now let's imagine those houses uh are video game studios right for and uh the color corresponds to their uh parent company right so let's say they're green if they're microsoft they're red if they are Nintendo, Sony, because in this world, Sony and Nintendo have already emerged. Uh, and let's say they're like, they can be painted whatever color they want, you know, as long as they're not those two colors, right? As long as they're not red and green, they can paint whatever they want if they're an indie studio or if they're, uh, just not affiliated with, with one of those two companies. How many, how many houses have to change to red or green around you before you start getting uncomfortable? You know, I, if you, let's say you're an indie studio. Okay, so two lines there, right? The line where things become a absolute, like, no, we need to address this. Like, what's the breaking point? Is when 50% of those houses in the entire cul-de-sac are green or red. So if the total number of green houses and the total number of red houses combine equal 50%, then that is my, like, I'm calling the FTC directly. I have, like, I'm on the neighborhood watch and I'm getting ready to report something sus. But where I start to get uncomfortable is probably at that, like, 35. Honestly, no, where I start to get uncomfortable is, like, closer to, like, the 25 to 35% mark. So if, like, a quarter of my neighborhood is suddenly, like, green and red houses, then I'm, like, Whoa, okay. Hang on here. Something, some sort of cult is forming. I don't know. <laughs> Why is everyone painting their house green? So that would be it for me. Like, like absolutely, we need to check on this at 50% like market control or cul-de-sac control. And at like 25 to 30%, that's the like, we need to put an eye on this. Yeah, I mean, as these like indie studios are getting built up, right? To keep the, to keep this like extended metaphor extended uh it's like not only is the house getting painted green but it's also getting an extension you know and then it just feels like there's like a homeowners association that's kind of like low-key enforcing all these green houses and it's like if you're not a green house then you're like acutely aware that your house is not green um but you do have like bargaining power the longer you hold out and don't get bought i would imagine uh that like if you don't paint your house you know if you don't let microsoft buy you and you're one of the only houses left it's like holy shit now we all want this last house because we know that the indie market is like not relevant anymore uh so who's gonna snatch up this last one you know um 
but okay let's drop that <laughs> do you have anything you want anything else you want to say about like context or i feel uh, like triple a can be monopolized but not the video game market as a whole like i feel like potentially triple a and that dude, maybe it, has it, to that do is more the so monopoly. with money triple a is the monopoly they get more a's because they have such fucking financial force that's like the very point. Like you're giving indies so but much. But how credit. is AAA itself a monopoly, though? The point is that AAA games and indie games are both games, right? But AAA games get millions of dollars poured into them, and their expectations that millions of dollars will come out. That indie game is like, like I don't, I don't devalue the potential uh, that one person with a vision, uh, you know, like that one person with a vision can can execute that vision if they're really passionate about it right and like we see breakouts like like Stardew Valley where it's like whoa this one dude like lived on his girlfriend's income for 10 years and then now he's a millionaire because his game that he personally invested so much of his life into is, is you know is came to fruition and people love it you know that's amazing but it that's that's not a common story you know that's like uh, there are a lot of people who go on oprah and don't leave with cars but we all hear the car you get a car you get a car you know it's like yeah that doesn't happen for most oprah guests uh and most indie games you probably make no money or little like you know i'm completely speculating here like please don't take this like you may know more about indie game sales that you know carlos but like I'm guessing that that compared to any like a like a mediocre triple A game, any indie game is gonna like pale in comparison. Yeah, in terms of how much financial backing they get and most of the time how much ROI they get, for sure. Like what I'm mostly saying is I initially thought it was possible for AAA to be monopolized in the sense of like maybe Ubisoft makes this like wild turn where suddenly they have re-reinvented the open world genre or they invented a whole new genre in a very good mainstream way and they now get enough money to buy this, that, and the third. Let's say like AAA publishers that are not directly tied to a hardware daddy. So let's turn to the consequences of murders, acquisitions, etc. Uh, how is it good and bad for players, for consumers of games? And how is it good and bad for uh, developers, right? Those are the kind of two lenses that, that I'm most curious about here. So, Lowe's, do you want to tell us how uh, this impacts developers first, or would you prefer to take it from... I mean, you first and foremost, I guess you are a player of games. You've been playing longer. Than yeah, you. we're gamers, TM. Like, we should talk about the gamers because that's what everybody cares about is that end product, playing it and whatnot. So how can these mergers and acquisitions be potentially bad for gamers, right? We've talked a lot on, like, monopolies and or, like, having control of a certain output and... On that front, acquisitions could harm the like gaming marketplace or environment if there isn't competition going on because that stifles innovation. It stifles like new novelty. Like even if it's not innovation, it could still be a spin on a novelty we've already experienced, thus creating that new sort of like unique experience. It could potentially lead to a lot of homogeny between the games. So on top of competition not really being present to present something new, it's possible that we get a lot of this like, oh, I've kind of played this game before. There are a lot of elements, whether they're mechanics or presentation styles, that make this feel similar to other games I've played. For instance, we see this a lot with Ubisoft games and Sony first-party games, PlayStation Studio games. 
where at least with PlayStation Studio games, you know, they're presented in a very big budget Hollywood cinematic narrative focused framework with like various genres and mechanics. We got quick time events. We got a big round platform that at some point is going to move like an elevator. We've got the buddy lift. We've got the sticky. Yeah, the nice little squeeze way. Always there's two rocks that are super close to each other that you got to kind of like narrow shimmy your way this through. Is, and this is, this is so ubiquitous that you and I want to have a whole episode on, on like AAA tropes, you know? Uh, like I wanted to talk about it right now because I'm so furious about it. But like I, I just <laughs> I find it really astounding, and it, we it does warrant a, a full episode, honestly. But that kind of homogeneity that that we're talking about is uh, any game that came to mind as we were talking about these these kinds of AAA tropes. Just imagine them if they'd been created by an indie studio, and there is a much less chance that you would have seen those mechanics. You know, like there are other ways of doing things, but but if there's a if there's a way that uh, you know seems efficient, or it's like, well, we already solved this problem, so there's no need to reinvent the crawl space. You know, but it's like there is because pl- if since you have seen that before as a studio, we as players have played that countless times, right? And so the idea is that essentially by having more independent artists create and and you know find different ways of engaging the player right there will be less homogeny right this some people do this for film right like they think that they're like there there's a film arc that's like just too obvious so they would seek independent films because they even though they're lower in budget the idea is that perhaps they're they have more creative uh, they room for creativity, perhaps, right? Same with music, right? I don't have to be bound by the label. I can create the music that is truest to my like artistic sensibilities. The last thing I want to bring up on the bad side is the again potential threat of like console exclusivity, as publishers or companies acquire more and more developers. The question there is like. Well, they obviously have a goal to push more of their hardware to as many people as possible. Are they choking off the supply to consumers in terms of like video game variety? Is that variety, is that landscape of games to play going to be severely hindered or set up in a way where a consumer feels almost like unfairly backed into a corner when it comes to their hardware purchasing options? Yeah, and there's also uh, price fixing, which we haven't talked about yet. Uh, price fixing occurs when uh, like two companies get together and they determine what the price is of something that they're selling is going to be. Um, that's illegal. Right. Let's keep pushing the hypothetical of your Microsoft versus Nintendo Sony combined, right? If now those two are combined and we have like, oh, okay, Switch is still in play, PlayStation 5 is still in play, Xbox Series is still in play... But now we just have two parent companies. If they were to meet up and say, oh, ha ha ha, okay, if anybody wants to use our hardware, they must charge $80 for their game. Otherwise, we're not going to allow it, which like, I don't think they have that power in general, but that would be a, a part of price fixing where they're like, okay, well, I'll charge like 80 for any games that are going on Xbox. And then you guys charge like 70 or 60. So you seem like the better deal. You make your money, then you pump up your price for PlayStation games. That way they come to Xbox games for a bit. And that's all being organized. That's yeah, price yeah. Fixing. I mean, it could also be the case that they're like, they're both, let's say, let's say Nintendo and Microsoft are like, have a meeting, right? They're like, Look, we're both charging $60 right now. 
Uh, we're both making a profit. Like, this is working for us. We're successful businesses. But imagine what our profits would look like if we both increased our uh, prices to $80 on the same day at the same time. Now, nobody has a choice because we own so much of the of the industry, right? We So much of the software for sale uh, is attached to our name. And so if we both do this simultaneously, everyone will have no choice but to give us that their cash. Uh, and, you know, in that sense, if they both, if they both comply, then it's consumers are the ones who are, are at a loss there. Right. And that's the whole, you know, that's the stated purpose of the, uh, federal trade commission, right. The one who's looking into these monopolies, right. We should be clear about that. Um, their whole point is to like advocate for the consumer. Will this practice, will this merger, will this acquisition negatively impact uh, competition that will be best for the overall market, including the consumers of the market? What about the good side for gamers? Do you have things that immediately come to mind? Yeah, we mentioned a couple of good things for gamers a little earlier in this episode. Things like subscription services becoming more robust, specifically Game Pass in this case. But who knows? Like I hear that like Sony potentially has their own sort of Game Pass thing coming online soon. And if not, they could include it with their like games with PlayStation Plus type deal, right? Uh, as Sony buys more studios, like more things can get integrated into PlayStation Plus. But that's one big point that's like really good for us, specifically Game Pass players is like, oh, Zenimax got bought. Sweet. I can't wait to play the original Fallout on my PC, or I can't wait to play Morrowind on my Xbox series now that I have access to this. Uh, more resources can be allocated to like optimizing the games or just the game development in general. So now we're kind of like getting a little bit into like, why is it good for devs? But for player experience, like the ability to know that like oh okay this studio is like got a big money daddy like you know i should be able to get this game on release day and it's going to work fine even more so what's a cool thing is like now at least on the microsoft side they are saying like hey on launch day this thing is going to be on console and on pc like we're not having this like wait a month or anything like that we want to hit like global everyone launches at the same time multi-platform everyone launches at the same time and we want players to be able to super play together so that that's kind of like a couple of different fronts where it's like oh the games are being kind of enhanced in these like more subtle ways that may not immediately translate into like oh this is like a new type of gameplay that i really like and this that and the third but it is more so like actually this is creating a much more accessible easy to handle gaming experience that was gonna that was gonna use the word accessible yeah so it sounds like that your two major points are uh one that they will be perhaps better in quality right they'll have like more resources or like you know specific engine that they can use perhaps that that are used in other games um that is like a you know tried and true product uh and then the second part is uh that more people will have access to them and, you know, through subscription services particularly. Uh, and I, I kind of view this as like the Netflix problem, you know, where it's like how much of this is a problem where it's like uh, Game Pass has become like fully integrated into like my play style and, and like my just expectations for gaming. And it's like uh, the concern is they could just increase the price by a dollar every month or every year or you know maybe not every month but like every, let's say every six months they increase the price by a buck 
right? Eventually, you're going to be paying way more than you remembered or that you signed up for initially. But I feel like that's once they have enough people hooked, then they can kind of do whatever they want, you know, uh, within within reason. Uh, but they just have a lot more power there once we're all already subscribed. It's hard to get yourself off of a subscription service if it if it has uh, like an endless amount of co- good content. Yes, exactly. And the other problem I see with the subscription service in general is just that much like any big trend, there's plenty of other corpos trying to jump on it, right? Like I briefly mentioned that Sony might be doing its own sort of Game Pass thing coming soon. I know Ubisoft has already like been running their own Game Pass thing specifically for Ubisoft games, right? Uh, you play plus it's called that's so absurd i think ea had their own one and the ea one got integrated into xbox game pass proper at some point so the bad part of that good part i guess would be (laughs) just like all these subscription services popping up again like it's the whole like streaming services becoming cable problem except for gaming platforms. But I think the market has done a much better job responding negatively and making their opinion known about that particular issue where like there's too many subscription services and things like that. Okay, let's switch gears. Let's talk about how this impacts developers. Um, First off, Carlos, uh, do you have any uh, personal experience ever being part of a studio that was acquired and or know anybody like i guess like i'm looking for like secondary like a secondary association or something like do you know anyone who was working for a studio that was acquired or what is your experience with this personally versus you know like kind of just the more theory and speculation yeah that's a good question i personally have not worked at a studio during a time where they were merging or being acquired I know of maybe a small handful of people or less that were actively working at a place while a merge or an acquisition was happening. And the most I sort of know from that is, let's say, an acquisition is happening, right? So I believe in either case, like merger or acquisition, employees who are working at the target company they usually have to sign a contract that says, I will continue working for target company for this number of months. I think it's something of a kind of housekeeping, like just make sure everything is as stable as possible while like the records are being updated before having a lot of like employees shifting around, whether that be talent flight or like certain employees going to different places within the same umbrella company. That's kind of the one big thing I know about from say a merger or an acquisition from inside the studio. Other things that would likely come up are like a town hall. Like let's say the game studio I was working on got acquired by somebody. We learn about this through Kotaku or whatever, like IGN, some sort of website. We just sort of see it on the internet and like pass the article around and we're like, what's this about? What's going on here? Typically, the head of the studio or somebody else that's really high ranking does like a town hall meeting with the entire game studio to explain the situation. And this doesn't happen like just with acquisitions and mergers. Like the town halls happen in general to let the studio know what the status is of the studio, what their goals are, like if new people have joined and stuff. So this would kind of just be a state of the union, but for, you know, our company is being acquired, right? And I think as you go later 
Well, I just want to say that Town Hall is perfect because of our house, like our house metaphor from before. I'm just loving that you brought it back to the town, the hundred houses in a cul-de-sac. Oh, that's um, funny. But also, <laughs> I cannot believe people find out that their biz- that the their employer was acquired from, like. Kotaku or something like that's wild sometimes the lines of communication are not the best you know and sometimes the deals are so not volatile but you know nothing is actually part of history until pen touches ink and usually in the game dev industry everything gets played really close to the vest so like you don't know about things until they have actually happened i'm not saying like every game industry developer is like blind in their day-to-day work as to like what is going on at a larger scale but it's not necessarily like hey we on the business end need to tell you like this is potentially happening this is potentially happening uh if it looks real i'm sure more often than not if it's a good business like they let their people know ahead of time sort of what to expect because something else that is impacted by this is that sense of like job safety and security not necessarily that like oh a developer is going to automatically assume that they're going to be fired due to an acquisition or a merger but there is the question of like well is there enough money to keep paying our salaries right do i need to go start looking for a job they could potentially really like the culture that's still at that studio they could like how much they're getting paid but if they're unsure if their studio is like actually going to be integrated into this company or like work alongside them in some way, the pay of people could be affected. Right. Yeah, and and let's not be unclear about this. There also could be redundant positions, right? So like if if company X and company Y merge and they both have like hundred person HR departments and they realize, well, we don't need two hundred people for the HR. We do need more than a hundred because we were managing a lot more employees, but we can deal with 150 HR employees, then 50 people are gonna get laid off, you know? And it's just like, yeah, that sucks for those people. They're gonna be out of a job. And this doesn't just happen with HR, right? This could happen with QA. This can happen with every aspect of the like video game teams. Um so people, you know, their their pay is threatened, uh their uh their jobs themselves are threatened. It's the, and this isn't just exclusive to the video game industry. This is just, this is what happens when companies acquire other companies. Right. And something that is more exclusive to the video game industry is kind of the culture around end of project and staffing within the studio. You could have a studio that is very much like we want to keep all of our members between projects. We don't want people to enter this like feeling of uncertainty and unsafety because they think they might be let go just because the game they're working on is now done with production, which is a pretty common like concern amongst most developers. And if you're already worrying about that in like your general job hunt, that fear comes right back when now this company you haven't built a rapport with or really know how they operate, what their culture is. Like if they become your parent company, now you kind of, again, got to like wait for the town hall and or talk to your HR people to get a read on like, hey, do these guys like will they hold on to us or are they very much more a we only need to staff up when we have a game that needs to be worked on? Yeah, and there is the problem of companies uh, becoming too powerful, too too hands-on, I suppose, is a way of thinking about it, uh, where they start, you know, one one 
company will acquire another and then they will uh uh like project all of their styles of making games uh onto this development studio that already had a workflow everybody knew whose responsibility different projects were etc right and then and then uh, another company will come in and kind of change things around thinking that they're going to make the system more efficient but actually uh it could be the case that they do that, but it could also be the case that it's uh, to the detriment of the of the studio. And um, there's there's something called the EA graveyard, uh, which Los, you can you'll be able to talk about better than I will. Um, but essentially, the point of, of the EA graveyard is that uh, studios, some of which had been around uh, for many years, once they were bought by EA, just went into the can. Right. Yes, that is correct. But it's not like they were bought by EA and then directly went defunct. It was typically the case that these studios that got bought by EA ended up showing signs of their games following certain trends and or directions that didn't align with the output before the acquisition by EA. And the market reception to said games not matching expectations from EA which eventually led to EA making the business decision of, well, we're paying too much money for you guys and we're not getting enough ROI, so we're going to close you down. And amongst these studios are Danger Close, which made titles in the Medal of Honor series, Pandemic Studios, which made the original Star Wars Battlefront 2, as well as Mercenaries, Playground of Destruction, The Saboteur. There's Visceral Games, which made Dead Space, right? And many other studios, like, along the years from, like, 1980s to today. Uh, so this has kind of just been memed, like, across, let's say, like, the last 10 years. Just how notable it is that this publisher acquires a studio and then kind of, like, inserts these, like, oh, this is what made money in this game. This is what made money in this game. We need to have these frameworks. Like, nowadays, it'll be microtransactions right because that's like so big doesn't matter if it was on a mobile game doesn't matter if it was in a console game like ea knows microtransactions make money so that's something that almost needs to be in every single ea published game whether it actually fits into the game or not it could almost be speculated that like as part of the conception sheet or brainstorming session, there needs to be hooks for microtransactions, you know, like you don't even know what the game is yet, but you know that it needs to have hooks for these microtransactions before you even have the idea. Yeah, I might be too uh, excited about this, this cul-de-sac that I keep referencing, but I'm going to go back to it. So it's as if, you know, a company had a, a tennis court in the back of their in the back of their mansion, right? And then EA comes around, buys up the house, paints it whatever the col- whatever color we can assign to EA, and decides, well, as EA, right, I have a lot of uh, swimming pools, and people seem to like the swimming pools. And this tennis court, it's just not doing, it's not getting enough use. Or I don't, I don't project that people will like this tennis court or appreciate this tennis court because the market tells me that people really like the swimming pools that we have across all of our houses. So they get rid of the tennis court and put in a pool, but the thing people liked about the game, the, the house was the fact that it had a tennis court and you didn't have to go swimming if you didn't want to. There are players who prefer tennis to swimming uh, and they just 
they think that they're following the market. They try to do what they think is the right thing. They try to make the game more marketable. Uh, but it comes, you know, going back to the homogeny, it, you know, it just seems too, too samey to us. We're, we're bored by, by the, the same tropes that we see. Uh, and now there's nowhere to play tennis. And like this house eventually gets condemned is, is the, is the end pro, like the end goal. It's like the EA is like, well, we put in a swimming pool and nobody came. So I guess this house just sucks, you know? And it's like, no, this house was good when it had a tennis court. Like that, that's the reason why people were coming to this house. Uh, and you got rid of the thing about it that was unique, you know, and that's a really very sad consequence. You know, people spend uh, a big chunk of their lives trying to develop these studios, you know, from from indie to getting this kind of rain, uh, name, big name recognition where EA wants to buy you. That's an incredible feat uh, that should really be be valued and appreciated. And then it goes to nothing, you know, and all this, all this hard work, you know, I mean, you get money out of it, right? Like the person, whoever sold the studio, I mean, it's not like they walk away with nothing, but their legacy is tainted by, because EA fucking dropped the ball. And that's, that's really sad. That should not happen, or at least shouldn't happen frequently. You're absolutely right. And I think that's a fantastic metaphor for the story of Visceral Games, who made the Dead Space trilogy, like exactly what you said, beat by beat of having, you know, this special fixture on the house and that being the reason why people come there. Like, that was very much the, like, this is a spooky horror game with, like, a unique mechanic to it that also was kind of a shooter. This is why we come for this game. And then over time, it became more and more of a pool, which every other game had a pool. So we, like, fell out of it and, like, EA didn't really see the actual problem with it. You know, it was like, it's the children who are wrong, not me, right? And then, yeah, they condemned that house, and it was very unfortunate. Other things that tend to happen in the unfortunate category are things like, and this doesn't directly impact a developer, but it could impact a development studio as a whole, as I'll explain in a second. But when a publisher or some sort of big player in the games industry ends up going uh, defunct or bankrupt. In this specific case, THQ in like 2013, uh, going bankrupt and having to auction off its IP, its various properties. Uh, that was a major happening. I remembered hearing about that on like IGN podcast for months, like almost certainly months. So THQ, right, having rights to games like Darksiders, Homefront, Company of Heroes, some WWE games, Saints Row. There's a lot of like really good stuff here. And it answers an interesting question of like, well, what happens when the company that owns, say, like Spyro the Dragon or something like that? What happens when they stop being the big multimillionaire mammoth that they are? And I guess this is it, right? They need to liquidate all their assets in order to pay off their debts in whatever deal that they made. And part of that liquidation is saying, hey, we were the ones who had rights to make this game or use this world and use these characters that were already set up. Now we are selling that. Who would like to buy? And that's where you have like big possibility space. It becomes suddenly like blue sky, like from these ashes, potential phoenixes are able to rise left and right. Don't take necessarily any example I give as like this happened in real life. I'm just saying like this is potentially what could happen, right? Where you could see like Sony potentially buying some properties like Darksiders could have become like a Sony exclusive property. 
things like Dead Island could have potentially gone to like Microsoft or even just a different publisher. Like I think THQ Nordic, which was like not dissolved along with just regular THQ. I think the different branches of THQ uh, still survived in some way or another. They ended up buying like a couple of the IPs so that they themselves could like give them out to like different studios, right? So what I'm kind of trying to say is that even though this publisher house went away and had to give out its IP, that almost gives us this like really interesting and fun space as both a developer and a gamer TM, where as a gamer TM, I am seeing, oh my God, the people who make or publish Red Dead Redemption and Bully and Grand Theft Auto, they own Darksiders now. If they ever use that IP, I kind of am going to assume it's going to be like a Grand Theft Auto or a Red Dead Redemption or a this. What the hell is Darksiders going to look like in that type of world? Whoa! Like, I'm a gamer TM. I only know how to operate off of, like, you know, the pre-existing examples I've seen from that output and combining it with the IP that I know and that I've kind of played from this different developer. It's almost like how Spike Lee, like, remade Old Boy, but, like, in his own style, right? It's going to provide possibility space for like brand new takes from very different environments on like a piece of media or a world slash brand that we're familiar with. That could also be potentially applied to Bungie and 343 Studios where Halo, like the original trilogy or quadrilogy was like made by Bungie and then like Halo 4 and beyond was made by 343 Studios. So you're feeling that difference, like both in the like in the way the game looks, the way the game feels, because different people entirely, different teams entirely took a stab at like working in this box that has been created. So a similar thing could happen to Darksiders with like other studios. And that's just like sort of a nice thing that comes out of a not-so-nice thing, which is the bankruptcy yeah, of Yeah, that's really reframing. You're like, you're like, well, from the point of view of the game, it gets to live on and be iterated in new ways. Um, but it's getting farther from the vision of the person... As a developer, it sounds interesting for, like, the box, the being able to paint in this different box. Like, that's yes, what's cool and, for Yes, and I do find that interesting. And, I mean, but we can't look at it without knowing that the person who initially conceived of the idea is... Uh, you know, their idea will be man- manipulated far outside of their, like, domain of control and also their, like, I- initial intentions, which I-, I would imagine happens in game development all the time since you're working with big teams of people and, you know, you kind of have to be flexible to changes and, and new ideas and all of those kinds of things. So adaptability seems like it would be really important and, and just not getting too stuck on your one idea. But it's interesting. The THQ thing is really interesting because it, instead of just being bought outright, you know, instead of one publisher, you know, pre- previously or for, for most of this episode, we've been talking about companies that were just bought outright and or merged. This just this feels very different to me. Um, the idea, you know, inst- OK, to take our, our earlier example of like Sony and Nintendo merging, right, to create this kind of duopoly between the Sony, N- Nintendo and uh, my- versus Microsoft, right? What if instead Nintendo was like, wow, we're really not making any money. We're getting bought out. We're getting beat out by Xbox. We're getting beat out by Sony. Um, so our new strategy is we're going to sell Mario to Xbox or to Microsoft, right? We're going to sell Kirby to Sony. We're going to sell 
uh, Splatoon to to Microsoft, you know, and divvying, just divvying these up, you know, and seeing, you know, you can almost like auction each IP as its own thing and see who will pay you more for the individual IP to try to maximize the amount that you're going to get rather than bundling them all together and letting the company be, be purchased. Um, and also, if you think that a certain studio, like if it's important to you that this is going to live on in your vision and you think a certain studio is going to make like do this do this IP justice then you can even sell at a loss if you want you know or or perhaps just not as much as another company would pay you if you think that company would trash it you know if you think something is going to if you think Kirby's going to if you're Nintendo and you think Kirby's going to go into the EA graveyard if you sell it to EA but you think that a cinematic driven Kirby game is like really what the franchise uh needs then you, maybe you'd want to sell for Sony even if they're not going to pay you as much as EA <gasps> As you all know, we are in the process of experimenting with new third segment shows. We've done the variety show. We're moving on to a new one called uh, Our Hot Takes. This is where Carlos offer, is going to offer us a line of something that's controversial. I have the opportunity to agree or disagree at face value, and then Carlos uh, will provide us more information, and he and I can debate or, I guess, maybe just agree, and then we'll fall flat. Let's see. Carlos, do you have a hot take for us? Yes. I don't know how hot of a take it is, but I do have a take that I feel like doesn't get said that often. As a player, as a gamer, TM, I believe video games should have hard drive data caps. That is my hot take. See, this is already... Yeah, I see why this is controversial. You have to limit how a game... The, the amount of content that a game can hold, which itself, it's like saying like a book can be too long. Like no book should be over 800 pages. That takes up too much shelf room. I think there's like difference in it because you can optimize content to a fair degree. There's a lot of things you can do file wise to optimize and shrink the file size of various things within a game. I'm saying Call of Duty Warzone takes up too much hard drive space. That's where this hot take comes from. How much? Call of Duty Modern Warfare Warzone is now about over 200 gigabytes on PC and or PlayStation. Um, I think they're clocking it at about 209 gigabytes. And this is if you have Warzone plus the Modern Warfare game. If you have Warzone, it's probably a little bit less. But still, that means Warzone itself is over 150 gigs. Potentially, because it's gotten like more updates with like a different map and stuff, it's potentially Warzone itself back to that number. And the PlayStation 4s have a, I believe, 250 gigabyte hard drive space. Maybe some of them have, like, I think if you have the Pro, it's a one terabyte hard drive space. But a quarter, a, a, fifth, a quarter a of that terabyte, if you have the Pro version of the PlayStation, a fifth? Oh, right, because it's, like, 200, sure. Uh, I'm, like, still reading it as, like, 250. But, yeah, like, a whole fifth of that is for this one game that is a game-as-a-service game. It's not God of War. Like, it's not taking me on this big, epic journey of, like, cutscenes and all that type of stuff. In fact, God of War probably takes significantly less space than COD Warzone. And it is just baffling to me how often I have to peruse and, like, Sophie's Choice my games. Like, which one is getting fucking deleted just because one of these fucking big 
bullet sponge ass games are just like chilling on my hard drive. You know, it's like Snorlax sitting in the middle of the path. You're just like, bro, can you wiggle to the left a little bit? Like, seriously, why are you here? Like, I don't even play you that often, but I know the second my friends are like, hey, do you want to play this? I do not feel like downloading 200 gigabytes worth of game just to play a couple rounds of a battle royale. It's there. It's just so baffling to me how how this kind of like atrocious like file size file capacity for a game can happen and i feel like this is ridiculous because i think there are restrictions for like amount of data a game can take up i just don't know like where that rule comes into play and what that limit is and it definitely feels like just because it's Call of Duty, it's being allowed to hog up most of somebody's hard drive space, whether that be on PC or that be on console. It's a bigger problem on console because you don't necessarily have the easy route of like just buying a new hard drive and swapping it in. Like maybe you get an external hard drive and you got to plug it into the PlayStation, but that's like a whole nother step of shit. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And SSD cards are very expensive and like at least on the Xbox there are things that I can't play from uh like my USB drive I have to have an SSD card in order you know it's not optimized for for the USB so I have to like transfer files or whatever um I have a few questions that I just to understand your rage here um or I don't know ire I used the example of a book earlier like a, an 800 page long book right and I want to see why this is a bad corollary or or metaphor for what you're talking about uh so you said that you can do things to change the file right which i would say is like the equivalent of like well it's an 800 page book in like times new roman 16 so let's just make it 12 and then you made that 800 page book 600 pages or something right but that that affects the player experience the reader experience because now it's harder for me to see the letters let's say right it takes you know i have to strain my eyes to read the book are you suggesting that there are ways in which player experience could remain as good as it currently is for Call of Duty players, uh, but they could make the file size smaller? I will say that I don't know enough on the technical back end to verify that with actual like practicable steps to make that happen. But given the things I have seen and the technical knowledge that I do have, I know part of optimization is compression and or just optimizing in general like things. Compression is, you know, taking a file size and then running it through something to make it a smaller file size, right? That might be putting it in like a zip folder. That might be doing something with like, say, video streaming where like bit rates are being compressed in order for you to get a better picture, but maybe now the pixels are like more clustered together. So that is a potential pain point like you brought up. Maybe I can't see as well because, oh, the way these things are compressed, these art assets are compressed, it's now not giving me like a pixel perfect view of what the hitbox is. Or maybe our LOD system, level of detail system, the system that swaps out an art asset as you get further and closer away from it, maybe that is being like adjusted in a way that, wow, these trees look like shit when I'm trying to look at them during a gameplay moment. 
but it's saving on so much hard drive space. I'm not saying that is how you do it. And that's like the result every time I'm saying there are like a litany of tricks that engineers can do, and it might fall on other disciplines as well. But oftentimes when we think about the code, you know, or optimizations like that, we think of the engineers, there's a litany of tricks that can be done to make the file sizes smaller. It's a matter of, do you dedicate the amount of time and resources it takes to actually get that file size under control? Or are you just saying like, we got to get it out there. We got to get it out there, break things first, then, you know, fix them because we'll be in the marketplace and we'll have enough of the attention span of everybody. It's possible that a studio may not focus hardcore on its optimizations. Like it has to focus on optimizations at some point, right? But the optimizations are more like get this game performant and running and specifically running at certain frame rates on all these platforms. That's like the most important thing. That's the thing that really affects the user experience. That moment to moment, does this game run smoothly or is it looking like a PowerPoint slideshow? Am I super laggy? Am I clipping through a wall? All that stuff, right? The file size tends to come way later down the line, but this game has been out for a good long while at this point. Like the file size should be down. And in general, that's made me like much more aware of the file sizes of most other games I try to install. I feel like I'm pretty cognizant of the file sizes of most games I install in the last like five or so years, because in general, like hard drive space has been like more and more of a problem. So to see these games just like unabashedly be over a hundred gigabytes big, I'm like, yo, you got to calm down with this. Like you either better have a fuckload of cutscenes, some in bomb ass music or like something to justify that much hard drive space being taken up. And even then, like, I kind of don't want that much hard drive space taken up. I'm like, maybe uh, you do a couple less cutscenes. Maybe you learn how to, how to compress those cutscenes in a way that'll be good because calling on like my own experience, like the largest file size objects are typically the like cinematic files the audio files being like music and voice lines, stuff like that. I think those are like the two largest things is like movies and audio because those take the most damage when they are compressed and everything else is mostly like scripting and data and things like that. So you have much more room to like compress those and do different tricks to kind of make them appear smaller than they actually are. Yeah. Do you have a cap size in mind? Is there a, like if you could set the cap... Like anything over fifty is gets my eyebrows raised. I'm not suggesting that should be the cap, but I like you mentioned something with two hundred, and I'm just right. like the idea, like that. I just know I'm not downloading that game like under any circumstances. Like I, I, I guess I'm completely at, not that I've been dying for or thirsting for Call of Duty by any means. You know, I feel like we had our Call of Duty days when we were teenagers, and I, you know, I'm not. I'm not really interested in continuing to play that franchise, but uh, especially just it looks so much more fast-paced than it used to. But even if you were about to download Psychonauts 2 and it was like, oh, this is actually 100 gigabytes, yeah. you'd be like, if I saw what? Psychonauts like, Dude, we should do what? higher For a platformer? For any type of game? like two gigabyte size for... Yeah, dude. Uh, install size? <laughs> that would be really funny. So great question there in asking like how much should the data cap be? And I think 
110 gigs is like still too much. I was initially going to be like 110, you know, I don't want to go with a hard hundred because that sounds arbitrary. But at the same time, I don't think a tenth of a PS4 Pro should be taken up by a game. I think all games should be below a hundred gigabytes. Like a hundred gigabytes should be the absolute, absolute max. And even then you don't fill up the full 100 gigabytes, right? I do not want to put it on my system and see 100.1 gigabytes or something like that. Like I want that shit to be like 99.7 gigabytes. A hundred is definitely going to be like my stopping point. Um, I think recently I installed that Guardians of the Galaxy game and that was about 75 or 76 gigabytes. And I was like, uh, you know what? I can understand that fair amount of animation data in there. Lots of cutscenes going down, lots of music. So like I can excuse the amount of space because I'm clearly seeing where that space is being utilized in my moment-to-moment gameplay experience whereas with call of duty i'm like bruh this is all the same shit from modern warfare or this is all the same shit from this game so why is it taking up the size of like three call of duty games so how about you where would you put your data cap i'm saying 100 gigs is it for me i think that the best way to go about it would be looking at like what proportion of a typical hard drive uh would be right so what i mean is like let's say let's say let's look at like the pro model of consoles and let's assume that they have like a one terabyte hard drive right and this would change over time and as you know with moore's law we're able to have larger hard drives in a smaller space over time right so that that's why i think the percentage would like is a is a good way to go about this let's say something like 10 percent of the hard drive space for the current pro consoles right so if, that, if that's one terabyte that's 100 gigs that your game can be capped at 100 gigs. Um, I, I think like one strategy. I, I'm really not sure. Maybe maybe 10%, maybe 15% of of that. But um, like 15% of a one console for for a single game seems like a really really big ask to me. Uh, so, but but it's like you can have 10. Maybe like if you had 10 games on your console, you know, you'd be out of data already. You know, if they were that size, uh, and that that just doesn't seem seem really like. Uh, in terms of user experience, it's frustrating. Like we all have the that like more the Sophie's Choice, as you put it, right? Judgment of Solomon. I'm gonna rip off Psychonauts two and Bloodroots's <laughs> data saves uh, or like data files, and you know, like which one's the true, which one's my true child, kind of thing. Something about identifying the percentage of the hard drive is like tricky, though, from a developer point of view, because you have to make sure your game is working on both the base model and the premium model of the hardware. So like the base model of a PlayStation might have 250 gigs maximum in its hard drive, whereas the PS4 Pro will have one terabyte. I currently have this problem. I, I don't have the pro model of the Xbox right now. I have a Series S, not a Series X. I have hundreds of gigs less, I think, maybe 200 gigs less. So I, like, by this model that I'm creating, I would actually be negatively affected by that by that metric. But I think the incentive is on me. If I Since I went for a worse model, the incentive is now on me to get a better memory card. And I knew when I made that purchase, I was like, I really don't want to spend the extreme amount you know or i don't want to spend an extra 200 for the for the hard drive space if i just wait out wait it out ssd cards will eventually drop in price and then i'll be able to buy that and you know all the other specs are 
almost the same. You know, I mean, it's 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 a nearly identical model. They've said that they're going to be able to play all all of the same games. Like I was, I viewed it as kind of like like long game. Like let me kind of break up these payments in, in two installments where I buy the memory card essentially later uh, for this game. Um, and I need to do that eventually. Like I, I'm really sick of the way I've been managing my data, and so like I'm coming up on that. But I don't know our exp- our, if like COVID has made memory cards more expensive. I know that that's like fucked up a lot of markets. Yeah, there's probably certain chips. And stuff that need to be made for memory cards. Also, memory cards in general, I kind of am getting like a fucking I, culture shock I, I from know, you saying know, memory cards over and over again. Because I'm like, do you mean like external hard drive? Like, it, you know what switched it for me? The, the SSD drives just remind me like visually of memory cards. They just look like really big versions of them. So I never did that with like regular external hard drives. Like if it was like, you know, just a box. But now that it's like literally slips directly into the console, it just gives me straight PS2 flashbacks. And I, I can't, I can't. Can't not say it. Yeah, they've streamlined it back to that point, which is funny. <laughs> like, interesting, funny. Like, we like we gate these advancements, but then we figure out that, like, oh, actually, the way it initially is, you know, this box that you put on top of your console or to the side of your console, like, that's cumbersome. So let's streamline it, and then, bam, we're right back to memory cards. But now it's the 2022 version. Thank you for listening to Deep in the D-Pad. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and share us with your friends. For updates and discussion, follow us on Reddit at r slash deep in the D-Pad, Facebook at Deep D-Pad, and subscribe to Deep in the D-Pad on YouTube. Don't forget to hit the bell. And if you want to ask us questions or you had a chance to share your own D-Pad delight on the show, email us at askdeepinthedpad at gmail.com. Be sure to put question or delight in the subject line. Big thanks to 8-Bit Jazz and Kevin McLeod for supplying the music for the show. 